Hi everyone, it's Yola and it's Marta here. Today on the show, we have Kanwar Singh, aka Humble the Poet. I'm sure you guys have seen him on Instagram or watched his YouTube videos. If you don't know who he is, he's a Toronto-bred MC spoken word artist with an aura that embodies the diversity and resiliency of one of the most unique cities of the world. Humble's first book was published through the Indigo Press in October 2017. It became a Heather's pick and has stayed on the Globe and Mail bestsellers list since its release. Unlearn was re-released with HarperCollins Publishing in April 2019. On the show today, Humble shares how he got into spoken word and the inspirations behind his current books, as well as the new book. Obviously, he shares with us how he's been keeping with his mental health through the pandemic. Especially during the pandemic. And how he's connecting with his community during this time. And he talks a lot about his process on unlearning. Which... I'm like mind blown. I'm like, I need to unlearn everything. We all do. <laughs> so I hope you guys find some learnings or unlearnings on this episode and check out Humble at Humble the Poet on Instagram. Thank you so much for doing this. We're so excited. No problem. And we're Thank you for having so me. So thankful that you're able to come on. No, I, I appreciate it. Yo, that was such a fan. And I was like, oh my God. I know him. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it was perfect. It's crazy. We were reading your book and Marta, tell him. When I got it in December, I was, you know, I read the whole thing and I wrote down, I am real next to the intro thinking about maybe like, I didn't know that I'm on, I was going to have a podcast, but I was like, I want to name something that I do. I am real. And I wrote it down next to one of your quotes. So I felt like when we are, you know, when we were like, when we reached out to you, I was like, oh, that's so that's such a crazy coincidence. And what I wrote it next to was, um, uh, if you want to continue facing life, the most important thing isn't learning the new lessons you have to learn. It is unlearning the old ones you have to let go of. And I felt like that's so, that's how I base my life. And that's how I go about my life without even like really thinking about it. So it really like spoke to me and I'm like, oh, that's, that's great that people, there's other people out there that think that way. So it got me really excited. Oh, that's dope. I'm so glad you connected on that level. And for me, I found you, I think on Instagram, I'm sure, but I was really connected to you because of your work that you did as a teacher. Obviously in Toronto, there were a lot of immigrant kids or first gen kids that you taught. I myself am a first generation Egyptian American and a lot of what you talk about on other podcasts or in your books, I really resonated with. And kind of the unlearning of all these stereotypes when if your family's from the Middle East or India or you kind of get boxed into these stereotypes and you get caught up between two cultures almost mm -hmm. and you kind of have to unlearn that confusion or maybe what you know your parents grew up learning but you're in a different place so you kind of have to make your own decisions and your own conscious thoughts and things that are wrong and right so that's kind of how I how I found you. But for people who don't know you, tell us how you got into the art of poetry and written word. You're a genius at it. But oh, how did you go it. from being a teacher to saying, okay, I'm quitting my job and I'm pursuing this artistry? Well, it's, it's definitely a long story, but I guess that's what podcasts are for. Uh, I was a school teacher and I became a school teacher because I thought I had to do something responsible with my life like uh, everybody else. And um, that also required ignoring my gut 
telling me that I, I was meant to do something different. So I was teaching, gone to a concert, and I saw a guy do spoken word poetry. And I was like, oh, shit, this is fly. Like, this is so dope. I could do this. And I had always been writing stories, short stories, poems for girls, poems for my friends and girlfriends in their birthday cards. Obviously, my mindset at that point was like, you can't do anything with it. So just, you know, do it on the side or whatever. I ended up going to some spoken word competition and like performing at their amateur night right after getting off stage, like two really pretty girls came up to me and was like, oh my God, that was such a good job. And then obviously that's enough to put a battery in my back and keep me coming back and doing it over and over. And um, I started sharing that stuff on YouTube and I started building a following, never thinking it was serious. Again, just looking at it as an icebreaker, looking at it as a, a way to kind of scratch a creative itch. And then um, in the summer of 2010, and then I got a gig in California. And this is like the first time I'd ever gone to California. And so they, they bought me a plane ticket and flew me out to this conference and I performed. And, you know, it was just the coolest experience ever. And I made some friends there. And then the following summer, that was 20, 2009. And then in 2010, I ended up spending the summer with this artist who lived in south of San Francisco in this little city called Daly City. He was a full-time artist. And that was the first time I'd ever met a full-time artist. He was living in a rented bedroom in a house. And every single day, he would just get up and just go on the street and rap. He would go to other people's concerts and negotiate being an opening act for them. He would just legit like make 50 bucks here, or 100 bucks here. And he would just keep doing it until he could pay his rent. And then he would keep doing it until he could like buy some weed. And I would follow him around. And I was still making my teacher money over the summer. And it was just so inspiring. It was like the first time I saw freedom. And it really resonated with me. I was like, this guy's completely free. He does like whatever the hell he wants. I fell in love with it. And then the summer ended, I came back to Toronto and I couldn't get back into the gist of working. And then uh, I was in a relationship that ended. She moved to a different country and then and broke up with me. And then I was releasing music and then a song I released did really well. A close friend of mine, he stopped being my friend, said that we, we weren't supposed to be making music to be successful. So it was, it was really confusing at that time. But I was like heartbroken over losing a girl. I was heartbroken over losing somebody I considered to be a brother. And this other artist came up to me and he's like, hey, I work with these different you know, artists from different countries and they, they could really use writers. You could, I could probably get you like a really good writing deal and you can like leave your job and just like be a writer with me the whole time. We'll just make songs for these guys. Yeah. So I was like, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. So I quit my job. I felt like I needed a change and I pursued this deal. You know, about six months of swiping credit cards to pay rent and denial, I realized that this guy wasn't a trustworthy individual and that there wasn't a deal. So I ended up being unemployed, having a shit ton of debt, and again, heartbroken because I considered this person a brother too. And I was living on my own and having no idea like what to do and just blaming the entire world because now I'm like super broke, no employment, super embarrassed, super stressed out. And I just started like avoiding the world and avoiding life. And then eventually, probably after about two, three weeks of just sleep and healing, I was finally able to kind of take some personal responsibility and just be like, look, it doesn't matter what other people have done to you right now. If you want things to get better, you have to like step it up, you know, it's sink or swim now. And I think that was kind of the birth of the humble, the poet people know now. At that point, I had just become friends with Lily and we were having dinner and I was, I was kind of complaining to her about like, none of my friends, you know, who I make music with are dependable. None of the guys I shoot videos with are dependable and I can't get any work done. And, and she's like, just focus on what you can do uh, where you don't have to rely on anybody else. And that was writing. So I was like, okay, so I can write. So she's like, so just write, write every day, put that stuff out and you don't have to worry about, you know, you don't have to wait on anybody. And she was explaining to me when she was making her videos 
she didn't have to wait for anybody. She was able to film her videos, write her videos, edit her videos and release her videos without having to wait on anybody else. That level of empowerment was scary because it put all the responsibility in my hands. So I started writing every day what I was going through on Facebook. And then that audience, you know, the big comments they kept telling me was things like, you know, I really connect with this. Oh my God, you're telling me my story. And then really slowly they started saying that I should write a book. You know, my ego is like, you're a rapper. You don't write books. You know, books don't get you the girls. But at the same time, I was also like, I don't even know how to write a book. And then it was people in the community. They sent me links on Adobe InDesign, how to build a book, how to do all of this stuff. It's really cool, this experience of just like having a community have my back. And I kept making excuses and they kept kind of like giving me reasons not to make those excuses. So I ended up self-publishing a book, uh, raising money on Indiegogo. I ended up raising like 25 grand, which was like a life changer for me at that time. I was in such a bad place and that was such a game changer for me. How long did it take you to, from when you decided to write it to actually publish it? What was the, how long was the process like? Process was probably, it was probably a year to write it and then a year to build it. I really didn't know how to use like Adobe InDesign. Like I had to like build the book, margins, fonts. So Unlearn came out in 2014 independently. And then I used to sell that at my shows instead of a t-shirt. So like 20 bucks for a book instead of buying a t-shirt that's going to shrink in the wash. <laughs> and then the book itself, and then it, it became a source of income, but it also connected me with a whole different world because when you make music, you know, music is very genre based music. You know, everybody has their taste. You know, not everybody likes hip hop music. And even if people like hip hop music, that doesn't mean they can necessarily understand all the lyrics. I put a lot of work into the things I say in my music only to have people not connect with it or be more uh, concerned with the melodies, which is fine. You know, we all like music for different reasons. And I think when I dropped the book, because it was in black and white, it's in paragraphs, it's crystal clear. Uh, it was a lot more accessible for people to connect with. Um, and then people started hitting me up to translate it. Because it was on Amazon, it was accessible almost everywhere in the world at the time. And then it was great. And then I had self-published a second book after that. And the, the entire journey was kind of learning how to earn as an artist by probably the end of 2014, 2015. Uh, is when I got out of debt. All the lessons and the, the belt tightening that I did to kind of like keep myself from getting worse ended up, you know, being assets later on when the bank account hit zero and then I started earning some more money and then I started saving money and then I had my priorities in the right place. And so that kind of got me to, to this point where I was both creating music and sharing. And then every year after that, just new cool opportunities continued to find me until we got here. The rest is history. Amazing. And I imagine after you got burned by your friends in the entertainment industry, like you said, it put you in a low place. You slept for three weeks. How did you get yourself out of that low place? How did you find the strength to pull yourself out of it? And I think a lot of people, especially right now, they might find themselves in that low place if they lost a job or they're going through breakups or, you know, the pandemic's just been crazy. So how did you pull yourself out of that? I don't want to take a lot of the credit. I think time helps a lot. Time, yeah. That sleeping, like that, I was taking NyQuil every day. My, my original mindset was I'm just going to sleep and I'm going to wake up and then, you know, somebody who owes me money is going to send me money or that guy who has now disappeared is going to like have a moment of clarity and come back and make this all better. Nobody came to save the day, right? You know, no, no magical check came and wiped out my debt. None of that happened. What ended up happening was, you know, the, the past breakups and all that type of stuff. I, I medicated that by, by starting this adventure and distracting myself from it. So I think that three weeks of like complete isolation. And I mean, like, I also like lost a shit ton of weight. If you guys look at me now, I'm probably like 175. I went down to like 140. So I was just like 
complete bones. I wasn't eating properly. I was avoiding everybody. So I was so embarrassed to tell them what happened. I think it was a combination of rest and then also just kind of this trying to find inspiration and reading a lot of like fluffy ass Tumblr quotes about like, <laughs> yeah. you know, God doesn't close a door without opening a window. Like just a bunch of shit that wasn't going to help me yeah. pay my pay my bills and get out of debt. And I think probably the first piece of advice that I found was like take responsibility even when you don't think it's your fault. You know, when you take responsibility, you find power. It probably took weeks for that to get absorbed and kick in. And then I had music playing and it was a J. Cole song and it's called Dollar in a Dream Part 3. And in that song, he talks about, he said, you know, what are you going to do? Like grow bitter and grow cold? Or are you going to flip that dollar into a dream? Like, are you going to get the fuck up and, and do something about it? And I think at that point, the combination of the rest, the combination of the time, the combination of taking time to process things mixed with that, I just got up and I'm like, fuck it. Like, we're going to figure this out. And again, it wasn't an overnight thing. It took years yeah. to, to figure it out. You know, again, there was no magical check. There was no magical hero. I had to be my own hero. I had to figure it out. I had to swallow my pride. I had to move back home with my parents. I had to get comfortable with telling people that I wasn't doing well. Humble the Poet was still growing mm -hmm. and I was doing cool shit. Like I got to perform at Lollapalooza. I still got to travel and do gigs. Most of the gigs were, would either not pay or pay very little. So they looked really good for social media, but none of them were actually helping me you know, get out of debt or anything. So when people would ask me how things are going or when people would say stuff like, wow, it looks like you're living such a cool life, like such a great thing you left your job. I would just be honest. I'd be like, no, nah, I'm broke. I got to move home with mom and dad. I got to sell all my shit. I can't afford a car. I can't afford to go anywhere. I can only afford to just figure this shit out. And that also was an important lesson for me. I was afraid of people pointing and laughing. I wouldn't allow myself to say I'm fine when people said, how are you doing? Because I wasn't fine. And everybody I was honest and transparent with they didn't make me regret it. Most of them were like, yeah, man, I'm going through that too. Or, or yeah, man, I've been there. Or how can I help? I like what you said about the responsible for your own choices in life. And I feel like a lot of times people are so scared of that. And, and that's when their unlearning doesn't happen because they don't want to like step into their true self. But I never really understand what is it that you think people fear when they don't want to take responsibility? I think we like certainty. You know, we, we mm. like what we know. And that's the thing. When we're scared, we run to what we know. Even if what we know is toxic, even if what we know is unhealthy, you know, think about it like when we're having a bad day, eat a tub of ice cream or, you know, when we're in unhealthy relationships, oftentimes those are a result because they remind us of the relationships we grew up seeing, whether it was our parents, whether it was other people. For you, Humble, what is like a practice for like mental, emotional health that you've adopted over the years that helps keep you kind of grounded and insane? For a long time, my big philosophy was like, make sure your brain is holding the steering wheel, not your heart. For what I was going through, that was important. I see, I see things logically versus seeing things emotionally. That really helped me a lot at that point. Now, not so much. I'm trying to, I'm actually trying to unlearn that now. That's mm -hmm. probably been the theme of this year for me, which has been stop trying to make so much sense and start following your gut and trusting your heart and paying attention to that. Because where I am specifically in my own personal story is I have to be more uh, oriented towards my heart now. And I have to trust my feelings in my gut and be a lot less strategic and be a lot less everything. But at that moment, when I was going through so much on an emotional toll, my only, my only option for getting through it was to step back out of it and look at it with unbiased eyes and really focus on taking that responsibility. Because when you take responsibility, it's not about blaming yourself and beating yourself up. It's about finding your power. So instead of saying, yo, these people betrayed me, I had to say, look, I, I trusted people without doing any due diligence. I 
ignored their actions and I only listened to their words because their words sounded better. Knowing that, you know, these people who had, you know, done me wrong, I would have, had I paid attention to their actions, I would have seen this pattern. They weren't, they weren't master manipulators. They were just people without the tools to do better. So I think that was a big thing that helped me out a lot back then. It was really looking at it from a logical standpoint, realizing that, you know, my brain needs to hold the steering wheel and my heart needs to take a back seat and recognizing that, you know, generally when we start with anything, we react emotionally and we have to focus less on reacting and focus more on responding. To be able to respond to something instead of reacting to something just comes from practice. You know, let's say Marta's doing a brand deal. If it's their very first brand deal, somebody screws over on the contract or somebody changes something last minute, you know, you're going to react to it. But if you've done it 15 times, you know, you've seen it all, you can respond. You can, you can respond calmly. You know how to do that. So I think from that standpoint, um, that was a really big thing for me. And I think now that I've graduated from struggling artists, I have to go back to my heart. Actually, there's a quote that I found on your book that says, great individuals have the same amount of time in a day as we do. They have the same number of hours and minutes in a day, but for many reasons, they choose to spend those hours and minutes very differently. And, and again, it's, it's never a black and white statement. You know, obviously, if you have to work at a donut shop to pay your bills and pay your rent, you know, then you have to devote that eight hours of to course, that. Of course, yeah. You don't have an option. And I think that from that standpoint, there's one, but there's also from a creative standpoint where it's like, I'm learning that as a writer, I have to spend like three hours a day just thinking and walking yeah. and just staring at people and absorbing and sponging the world. And that's not procrastinating. That's not wasting time. You know, that's not the same as looking at my phone. That's not the same as watching Netflix. You know, I think for now, right now, especially when it comes to the time we have to use, we just have to recognize that a really important skill for people now is their ability to avoid distractions. The less we can be distracted, like it's a superpower, the more we can get done. And the world is full of distractions, full of medications, excuses to avoid the shit that we have to do. If you can put the phone away, if you can keep the TV off, if you can, you know, learn to sit with yourself, that's a big thing I'm doing right now. Do you feel like quarantine has helped with that or quite the opposite? Because I feel like we're so much more on our phones and our computers, but at the same time, we have so much more time that we can really decide how to use that time versus before we were just following like a path that was already like there without really thinking too much about it. So I feel like for me, it helped me so much to restructure my time and like what I do with it. What about you? I think quarantine revealed to me that I was already like what I went through on my journey as Humble the Poet kind of already prepared me for quarantine. Mm. You know, at that same time, you know, all this was happening. It was also the financial crash of 2008, 2009. So, like whatever money I had invested as a teacher, I lost all of that too. So I already had it in my mindset of like, all right, you are going to be a boring savings account guy. You will not have any investments. You know, life will always flip you on your head. So you have to be ready for that. You know, life's going to throw you curveballs. Practice your swing be okay with change. So when the pandemic actually hit, um, you know, I'm, I'm self-employed. My office is my laptop. So in terms of being isolated, you know, I spent the first two months in Toronto in my parents' basement before I found my own place. That was lovely. It was a lovely time where I could create and nobody was emailing me and I didn't have to do any of the other unsexy stuff that comes with being your own boss. What it also revealed to me is as I started speaking to other people who were a little bit more plugged into the world, mm -hmm. you know, people who have nine to five jobs, people whose entire lives were kind of based off that schedule and that routine. It made me realize that I was better prepared for this curveball than they were. Also that I needed to throw my own curveballs. So I think it became clear that I could deal with discomfort when it finds me, but 
what am I doing to find this comfort? So pandemic kind of showed me that. So the most uncomfortable things that have happened to me in 2020 have been by my own choices. You know, it wasn't the pandemic. And finding discomfort, does it help with your growth, your work, your artistry? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, it's kind of like the idea that an easy day at the gym isn't a good day at the gym. You know, it should always be hard. It doesn't matter if it's your first day or it's your 15th year. You're not just doing 30 crunches every day. You got to do 100 crunches. You have to do it until it burns. I think most of us, our growth opportunities come when life hits us with the challenges. Mm-hmm. And we have to adjust and adapt uh, and evolve to rise to those challenges. But the truth is we can create those moments anytime we want. You know, mm-hmm. we can walk away from certain relationships. We can walk away from certain uh, work opportunities. We can we can change our lifestyle. We can do a whole bunch of things that make ourselves uncomfortable. Recognizing that the process of adapting, adjusting, evolving, and recovering from all that change is how we get stronger and how we evolve as people. You know, I'm I'm still in it, and some days are better than others, and some days suck, and some days are, are great. Um, but I remember who I was 10 years ago when this journey first started. And it was like, you will only get better from this. You know, it is always going to be sink or swim. Instead of just being prepared when hardness finds me, let me go chase after the hardness. Let me chase after the challenges and get completely comfortable with being uncomfortable. Marta and I talk about that all the time, how a lot of the the best are the most genius people. They're always comfortable being uncomfortable and they kind of thrive in that. It's almost like trauma makes it better. Not that we wish that for people ever, but that really like shapes you in a way that if you don't go through it, you don't even have anything to learn from. Yeah, and the struggle, yeah. struggle kind of lights a fire under you. Like you were saying, humble, like you get too comfortable. So sometimes you need that struggle or that bump in the road to light that fire to get you to the next level. Yeah, I'm, p- pain makes this interesting. If we're, and if we're looking at our lives like a book, what are the parts worth reading? It's not when everything worked out. It's when it didn't. Yeah. It's when your back was against the wall, when everything looks hopeless. It's about asking myself, like, what are you afraid of? And using my fear as a compass and being like, okay, you're afraid to do that. Let's go do that. You're afraid to have that conversation. Let's go have that conversation. You're afraid to walk away from that money. Let's walk away from the money. Like you're afraid to do all these things. Let's do everything you're afraid of instead of waiting for the stuff that you're afraid of to find you. Find it before it finds you. In your opinion, do you need to unlearn before you learn? Probably step one is realize we're not our beliefs. And I know that's a chapter in the book, but it's the idea that we think we are who we are. Mm. We don't give a lot of credit to external forces for turning us into who we are. We always say it's it's a battle between nature and nurture, but it's not. It's nature and nurture. They work together. So our DNA makes decisions on who we are, you know, whether it's our eye color, whether it's our height, whether it's our body type or whatever, the type of people we date. Mm-hmm. A lot of that has to do with our socialization, has to do with our parents, has to do with our cultures, has to do with our personal beliefs. Most of that, I would say. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, 1,000%. Yeah. And I think, you know, again, like I was born and raised in Canada and I was taught, you know, play it safe, do this. And you're a child of an immigrant. So you got to be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. You uh, yeah. I, uh, That's crazy. <laughs> My parents still don't understand what I do. Do yours? <laughs> no. My parents, de- my parents definitely don't understand what they I do. They don't still, really? No. They, they, don't, they don't get it. And I mean, again, sometimes I don't know what I do. Like it's, I'm still figuring it out as well. But, and, and this is probably a little bit more in my DNA, uh, more so than my socializing. I realized very quickly that I loved learning and stimulation. When you're in grade two and then you go to grade three, it's like a new teacher, a new desk, you know, new clothes, new friends. And then every year, like it'd be a whole new adventure. And then all of a sudden you become an adult, go to the same place for work. 
you know, see the same people. Get stuck in a routine. And all of a sudden, five years goes by and you're like, oh my God, where'd the time go? You know, that doesn't happen when you're in high school. That doesn't happen when you're in junior school because you see where the time goes because every single year was like a new season in your TV show. As an adult, I really, I learned very quickly that, okay, now time is starting to blend in. I'm starting to do the exact same things every day, eat the same food, wear the same clothes. It's just, I felt it killing my spirit. And I realized that I loved new experiences. And part of that new experience also meant learning new things. And in order to learn new things, you have to let go of old things. And I love the idea of just having my beliefs challenged. I love the idea of being like, at this age, I'm still learning new words. I'm still mm-hmm. learning new ideas. I thought, you know, things were this direction and somebody totally blew my mind. So I think that's the first thing. I think a lot of people are afraid of what they'll lose if they abandon a belief. You know, they're in these like monogamous relationships with a belief. And we have to let that go because they think if they lose that belief, whether it's a political belief, whether it's a favorite sports team, whether it's a religious belief, whether it's a philosophy on money, love, they feel like if they lose that, they lose themselves. Being stuck in one of those things felt like death. So I just love the fact that like I'm on a constant adventure. Uh, no two days are the same. And, and again, there's pros and cons to it, obviously. And like I spent the last five years traveling perpetually you know, until the apocalypse hit and nobody can go on planes anymore. But uh, I think that's the important thing. And I think the reason I had to make a, a big commitment to unlearning was because the only reason all the challenging things happened to me was because I had these idealistic beliefs. You know, I believe that people had my best interests in mind. I believe that the first person who would recognize my talent would only utilize that to help me. I believe that everyone grew up in the same kind of house I grew up in, where, you know, there were certain levels of morals or certain levels of ethics involved. Uh, I believe that everybody could communicate the way I could communicate. I just had all these beliefs. And then life slaps you in the face. I'm like, oh, shit, everybody didn't grow up like I grew up. Everybody's family wasn't like my family. Everybody doesn't share my morals or my beliefs. And that was the first thing that I had to do. I had to get out, of, get out of my own head and get out of my own biases and be like, okay, it's a really different world. And I think it was a combination of recognizing that and also finding the the excitement in that. And you're like, holy shit, like this was in front of me the whole time. Like the wind was blowing the whole time. My my sails were just closed. I think for me, that's what's been the excitement. And I'm still on that journey of just like continually unlearning what I thought was important. And even now, like I'm I have a whole year till my next book drops and I'm getting back into music and just like I had all these beliefs around what it meant to release music, how music should sound, what the strategy should be with music videos and everything. And I'm just throwing it all out the window and just feeling like, nah, like you don't have the answers. Like you don't decide what song is going to be your biggest song. Your audience decides that. So you don't put anything behind a song. You just put it out there and let them decide. And that's been super uncomfortable and super scary, but I'm doing it. And it's going to be a really cool adventure. And I'm excited to see who I am in a year. As you were talking, one thing popped in my head is like, we can't base our identity to our beliefs. They're two separate things. I think once you let go of that, it kind of frees you, like you mentioned earlier. Yeah. And I got lucky because I'm from Toronto and, and, you know, Toronto is just like the most diverse multicultural place in the world. And everybody, there's that common theme of being children of immigrants, but there's also, it's kind of a little bit of a safe place to be critical and challenging. Like my best friend is a Somali Muslim and we can have open conversations and make fun of each other and tease each other. And one of the arguments we're having recently was he saw on my bookshelf, I had a Bible and he was like, how come you don't have a Quran? And I was like, cause you ain't give me a Quran. And then 
He's like, you ain't going to read the Quran. I'm like, I ain't going to read the Quran. I'm going to read the books on my bookshelf now. I'm like, put in sticky notes for me. Like, show me the best parts. And then he started arguing with me about that's not how the Quran works. You got to like read it end to end. And we can have these safe conversations and nobody's getting offended. Nobody's getting pissed off. Nobody's, you know, taking shit to heart because he's my friend and I'm his friend. And, you know, his, his parents raised him to believe certain things about Punjabi people. And my parents definitely raised me to believe certain things about Muslim people. And we know it's all bullshit and we can laugh about it. But that came from being in a multicultural environment where everybody felt comfortable to be who they were and learn from each other that way. Definitely when I leave Toronto and I try to have those conversations in LA, you know. Oh yeah, it's, it's, not uh, it's not the same. People can it's be definitely kind of not the same. Here. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in the same way that people see a brown guy rapping and start calling it a cultural appropriation, you know, it's just... I understand that I live in a futuristic city. I live in a city mm. where most of the major cities, that's what their kids are going to be talking about. That's how the kids are going to be acting. You know, every single day, more and more mixed race babies are being born. Every single day, more and more androgynous lifestyles are, are, are forming. And I live in a city where a lot of this has already been happening. We've been doing that. We have politicians that are part of the LGBTQ community. But if you ask anybody about them, they're just known as corrupt politicians. And that's what they should be known for. They shouldn't be having their lifestyle as their primary label. And I think we've gone past the point of looking at these labels that people have been giving each other and seeing people for who they are. And I think that's been an important thing that the rest of the world will catch up on. Humble, when do you feel the most real? Oh, that's, a, that's a really good question. Probably when I'm speaking to myself, because obviously you can't get away with lying to yourself. I speak to myself out loud a lot. I, I realize that thoughts aren't complete. Many times we don't, we have thoughts, but we don't form thoughts. So, so often we think that because it exists in our head, because we can hear a voice in our head, it must be our thought. But most of the time it's our moms, it's our friends, or it's what we heard on TV, or it's what we believe society thinks is important. And they're not really our thoughts. And most of the time too, they're not even complete ideas. And then when we start saying them out loud, now we're required to bring them to life, give them vibration, and that's required to make them fully formed. And half the time when you start saying this shit out loud, you're like, that, that doesn't even make any sense. That doesn't hold any value. And then that allows me to kind of see the difference between who I am and who I think I need to be or who other people have told me I need to be. You know, I still got voices of exes in my head and them telling me what it means to be a man. Or I got thoughts of people in the music industry of what it needs to be. And you just forget because you hear it so often or you heard it once or you heard it in a, in a impactful way that you start to think it was your own original idea. And I think the practice of speaking out loud allows you to kind of be like, whoa, wait a minute, that's, that's bullshit. Or wait, that's not, that doesn't even line up with who I am. And I'm, I'm on this process of really trusting my gut. And it's the scariest thing in the world because I do think, you know, it could potentially lead me down a Kanye West crazy type situation, but I'm making peace with that too. And being like, all right, cool. If I just say that now in 20 years, if I go nuts, people will be like, well, he warned us, right? Like that might be my purpose. And it just requires having a lot more conversations out loud or journaling or anything. Just For making me, it's it more writing. I was going to say like thoughts become real when I write them down and they have a whole different dimension and meaning, but also saying them out loud. It's, it's so true. I didn't think about it like that, but it's, it's so true. It just has to be, yeah, it just has to be real. And I, and I think that's the thing because I'm a writer, I'm often writing for an audience and I do have a couple of, you know, files on my computer that are just for me. And mm -hmm. I, I write stuff out and you're right. Obviously like, again, ideas form, connections get made and you're like, Oh, I've been feeling this because these 10 traumatic experiences in my life all align with that. Or I believe this because, or I always thought this was important to me because, 
and you start making those. So I think it's just about getting it out there. And I'm very encouraging people just yeah, either write it down or say it out loud. Um, I live by myself, so I can talk to myself out loud a lot. And my next book is about love. If you asked me six months ago, I would have just said, okay, yeah, you can't, you know, if you don't love yourself, nobody else can love you. But now I've been really going deep into what it really means to have self-love. And that's what's been motivating a lot of my uncomfortable decisions. And one of the activities I learned was this thing called havening, which is just like, be your best friend. Like, give yourself a hug. If you're stressed out, like, calm yourself down. I talk to myself at night and I tell myself, I love you so much. I'll always be there for you. I'll be like, I'll always be there for you. And I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> but I, And I've been even thinking about this even in terms of business, like where, you know, I'm walking away from certain partnerships and, and doing stuff by myself and having to say out loud, like, look, man, like, I won't rip you off. Like, you know, like invest in me. I won't rip you off. You know, the business inside and out. Like I'm, I'm, I'm the best stock to invest in because you know, the company inside and out, you know, where we make money, you know, who, how I spend money. I'm not going to, I'm not going to take your investment and, and, and fuck it up. Like, trust me. And I have to say this to myself because it's scary. And you're just like, no, no, let me just go work with that other company. They'll, they'll cut me a check. And it's like, no, do it for yourself and trust yourself. And if you don't trust yourself, why not? And it might have been because somebody told you you weren't trustworthy. Somebody told you you can't be trusted. And having these out loud conversations begins. It's kind of like dating yourself. It's probably the best way to put it. Yeah, exactly. So you have to date yourself before you before can date, date someone, someone else. Oh, a thousand percent. And on that yeah. note, I'm going to go cry. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm excited to read your next book. I think I think people need to yeah. learn how to learn that. It's definitely my most expensive book. And when I mean expensive, like the amount... like. I almost got caught in the motions of like, okay, you're good with words, like find cool ideas and make it simple for people to understand. But now this time, especially with this book on love, I made the commitment to say, no, everything that you talk about, you have to walk it. So another good example is like, I wrote a chapter about how to be a good listener, found some cool ideas, found did some research, and I was just going to lay it out and just, you know, look at it the same way you tell someone to like, hey, you know, you want to lose weight, consume less calories than you burn. Like it's easy to say, you don't have to actually do it give anybody good advice and that's how kind of how i was viewing it and i was going to make a joke about that and be like yeah i don't i'm not a good listener but here's how to be a good listener but then i read something that kind of hit me and it was the idea that you know when people come to you with their problems you want to solve them and i always thought that was a guy thing Mm. you know guys want to solve problems and girls are down to just be that shoulder or that ear to hear your problems and then through the research the idea was like no the reason you want to solve people's problems is because it triggers your own it triggers your own pain you're not trying to solve their problems. You're trying to shut them up. Mm-hmm. And uh, you're trying to distract, avoid, and medicate from it. And the reason this is happening is because you don't know how to sit with your own pain. And then that just set me on a whole journey about like, do I know how to sit with my own pain? What was the last painful thing I went through? Did I sit with it? Did I medicate? Did I avoid? Did I distract? And then that set me on a whole different course where I was like, okay, cool. I'm not going to write about how to be a good listener. I'm going to become a better listener. And then write about it. And then the writing will be even better. Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I think also at this point, that's probably not even a priority anymore. I think now it's, this is what pandemic helped me realize too. Pandemic helped me realize how important it is for artists to exist. Like mm. how many people kept their lips above water because they had Netflix or because they had access to music or because they had, you know, Tiger King or some dumb shit yeah. to talk about. Like they had creativity. They depended on creativity. How many people can only get through traffic because they can listen to their radio or listen to a podcast. It helped me realize that like, this isn't a privilege for me to be an artist. Like I've been doing this full time 10 years. This isn't my privilege. This is my responsibility. I have to take it serious. And 
you know, I'm not writing a book about love because like, oh shit, like, you know, people want to learn about love. There's a million books out there on love. I have to write a book about love because this, sh- this shit's still hard. Like it's so hard. And not only is it hard for other people, it's hard for me. And I, I want to be able to solve and address the challenges I have in that department. That's what Unlearn was. Unlearn wasn't a book for the sake of the book. Unlearn was written before I even thought about it being a book. But those writings, every chapter that you're reading was the conversation I had to have with myself to get out of my dark place. And I'm doing the same thing with this book where it's like, I'm trying to, I'm trying to solve these problems and address these problems. And the goal is to, to write the simplest, most practical, pragmatic book on love that's ever existed. Um, because I also feel like a lot of people get exploited in that world. You know, a lot of people are very hungry for love, hungry for affection, hungry for companionship. And there's a lot of people looking to profit off of that, you know. Um, and there's, there's a sucker born every day. And I, and I figure, you know what, if I can write something that will help that 17-year-old at least get on that right track. I'm not here to compete with the the love languages book. I'm here to get somebody interested in reading the love languages book. I'm not here to compete with the four agreements. I'm here to get people reading those books as well. And just realizing how long I've been avoiding doing that work myself, you know, and I can't blame exes anymore. And I can't blame my neighborhood anymore. And I can't blame Mm -hmm. toxic masculinity. I can't blame anybody else. I got to take ownership for who I am and how I am the way I am. And I got to just do that work. And through that process of doing the work, uh, this book's going to get revealed. And then, and that's the only way it's going to actually add value to people's lives. It's amazing. Looking forward to it. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Where can people find you, Humble? Where can they buy your books? Um, just Humble the Poet uh, on social media, humblethepoet.com. Yeah, that's it. We appreciate you. Thank you so much for coming on.